Amen. Well, this morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We are still in chapter 1. Either we're going really slow, or this chapter's really long, or maybe it's a bit of both. Either way, Luke chapter 1, we will finish it this morning. Um, If you do not have a Bible with you, the blue Bible's in front of you, page 948. 948. We come to a beautiful passage, as they all are, but this one in particular bears weight for this chapter. This chapter's been building up to this point. And this morning, as we see a conversation that maybe some of us in this room have had with spouses about naming children and I don't know if it's a conversation or a conflict. It kind of depends on how things are going. Um, we, we're going to see that scene unfold about John, the baby that's born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. However, when we see this, we're going to see something with it, something significant, something about who God is and the salvation he has provided for us. So let us look at the passage. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all, those, <clears throat> all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, 
and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. So the day had finally come. The day had finally come. They had waited and waited. They'd waited their entire marriage to have a child. And an elderly Elizabeth now gets to hear the cries of her baby boy. This moment is earth-shattering. Pastor Dan last week talked about how this, this story is it's actually kind of a musical, but it's, it's just this unfolding, this building tension of this elderly couple is going to have a baby. Okay, this virgin is going to have a baby. She's praising God. This elderly woman has a baby. Another praise of God. This is a monumental moment, and it's in the first chapter of his book. This is huge. But if we consider the hearts of Elizabeth and Zechariah for a moment, we may see that before this moment, before the angel had ever come, they probably, likely, would have been uncomfortable with the quiet of the Lord. Their hope very well could have been gone. They know that the Lord can open the womb. He did it for Sarah. He did it for Rachel. He did it for Hannah. But this is just Elizabeth. We can imagine that they had settled in their hearts that this wasn't going to happen for them. Year after year of waiting, it just became easier to just strike the thought than to have the false hope that something would change. And in many ways, their story up to this point is much like the story of Israel as well. For 400 years, God had not spoken to his people. There had not been a prophet that said, thus saith the Lord, because prophets spoke in the king's English. There had not been a message from God to his people. And while they wanted a Messiah to deliver them, we would understand if their hope was probably declining. We would understand this because we can often find ourselves with our hope and our trust in the promises of God declining. Lord, you said you were going to return. Lord, you said those who mourn will be comforted. Lord, you said that the meek shall inherit the earth, the merciful shall receive mercy, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Where are you? Why are there still funerals and tears? Why are the meek taken advantage of? Why are the righteous oppressed and persecuted? Why are the merciful reviled? This reality, this tension we live in, can cause us to fall into disbelief ourselves. That the promises of God either are taking too long or they're not worth the wait. But our text this morning, as we see this huge moment of joy, this fulfillment of promise, is a reminder in those moments, those pre-John moments, those pre-Gabriel moments for Israel, our moments in our waiting, it is a reminder that our God is a promise-keeping God. Our God keeps his word. He is forever faithful. He is our solid rock. 
He is our strength for today and our bright hope for tomorrow. Our God is a promise-keeping God, and he promises and provides not only good things, not only great things, but the perfect salvation we need. And so this morning, as we go through this text, my hope, my prayer for you all and myself this week has been that we will leave this text trusting and praising the Lord who promised and provided the perfect salvation for us. That is the point. Trust and praise the Lord who promised and provided the perfect salvation for us. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the text kind of in two main sections. We'll look at the story and we'll look at the song. We'll look at the birth of a promised child in verses 57 to 56. And we'll look at the blessing of the perfect salvation in verses 67 to 79. I'm not going to return to verse 80 at the end. But I'll just tell you at the front, at the end, Luke leaves us hanging a little bit. We see this beautiful birth. We see this amazing song. At the end, he's like, uh, and John goes in the wilderness and he's waiting because something's going to happen. So come back next week to see what happens as John waits in the wilderness. But before then, let's look at the birth of a promised child in verses 57 through 56. Starting with verse 57, we read, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So the angel promised earlier in chapter 1, he meets Zechariah in the temple, which is a little shocking for Zechariah. He's trembling because, you know, this glorious, beautiful angel standing before him. He just thought he's going to go in the temple, do normal day things. And God has a different plan. Um, but when the angel shows up, he tells him, your wife will bear a son. And now we read, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. They didn't have ultrasounds. So the fact that a son is born now is pointing back to what the angel said was true. She was pregnant, which is unbelievable, but she also bore a son, just like the angel said. Not only that, the word there for the time came is literally the time was fulfilled. So in one sense, Elizabeth's full term, her pregnancy was fulfilled, but in another, and I think more important sense, it's pointing us back. The word of the Lord was fulfilled. Elizabeth gave birth and she bore a son. Not only is the promise fulfilled in that sense, but then if we keep reading in verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. Well, again, look back at chapter 1, verse 14. Verse 13, your wife will have a son. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Again, prophecy, the word of the Lord, is fulfilled in this birth. This is a testament to the fact that God keeps his promises. There is joy, there is rejoicing, and promises being kept. But what we see very quickly is there's some controversy as well in this scene. Verses 59 to 63. We have this controversy surrounding what's this baby's name going to be? So just like every other Hebrew baby, 
Elizabeth's son was circumcised on the eighth day, what God prescribed in Genesis 17 and later in the law in Leviticus. But unlike other Hebrew babies, he doesn't have a name yet. Normally we see babies in the Old Testament, they get their name when they're born. For some reason, John didn't. There's precedent. It's probably because of Greek and Roman influence. Regardless, it's been a week. Zechariah is still silent. And John, or the baby, doesn't have a name yet. So naturally, somebody, probably an in-law, or maybe just a nosy neighbor, somebody, so what are we going to name this baby? Um, you have a name, right? You, you picked out a name, right? They, they're just gently and kindly asking. But in reality, very quickly, the whole group is very concerned. <laughs> this baby doesn't have a name. It's been a week. What's going on? Why does this baby not have a name? Well, of course, we, 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 we can help you. Let's help. We can help you, Elizabeth. Zechariah's out of the picture. He can't talk. We should just call him Zechariah, you know, like his father. Now, culturally, that makes sense. Family names were almost always used. Um, usually it was the grandfather, but Zechariah is old enough to be the grandfather. So, in one way, it's a bit of both with naming him Zechariah. In another way, this is Zechariah's only son. This is his only chance for his name to continue. Now, today, maybe we don't think about that as much, but then people did. It mattered that his name could continue. And this is his only shot. He's not going to have another one. But Elizabeth insists. She says, no. This is very forceful. It's not just, no, 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 no. It's, it's no. He shall be called John. Now, we don't know if Zechariah had written something down for her. He had nine months, so he had plenty of time, plenty of time on his hands where he couldn't talk. He probably could have written down that the baby's name is going to be John. Maybe the Lord revealed it to her. Either way, in the face of other people, those around her, family even, in the face of cultural pressure, she obeys the Lord. She does what his word said. Now, naturally, protest erupts. John. I mean, that's a fine name, but John, really? So they decide, well, let's go talk to Zechariah. Maybe he'll have some more sense. He'll understand how we do things. He'll, he'll do it how it's supposed to be done. So they ask Zechariah. And he gets a tablet, a piece of wood with some wax on it that he can write on. And he writes, not his name shall be John, not he shall be called John. His name is John. He is saying, this baby came with a name. The Lord gave it. This baby's name is John. Now at this point, we see in the text that the people wondered. Zechariah is still not speaking yet. Look down at verse um, 53. I apologize, 63. After he wrote, his name is John, and they wondered. He's not talking yet. He's going to in about two seconds. For now, they're just shocked that Zechariah and Elizabeth are both picking John for this name. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are showing us something. They're showing us that people who receive the promises of God respond in faithful obedience to his word. People that receive the promises of God respond in faithful obedience to his word. That's what's happening here. As they defy their neighbors, their family, 
culture, they're saying, the Lord has kept his promise. He's given that promise to me. I will follow his word. Now, this is no small thing. Because often we feel similar pressures, maybe not around naming our children, um, but we do feel similar pressures when it comes to life. Whether it's our neighbors and relatives as it was for them, whether it's our coworkers, maybe it's just the deafening sound of the TV and news and social media telling us how we should think and what we should do. Either way, these things can cause us to doubt the goodness in following and obeying the word of the Lord because they make the, our vision and understanding of his promises being fulfilled blurry. We don't see his promises. As, as Zechariah and Elizabeth are holding the baby, they can see the promise of God before them, and so they follow him with joyful obedience. And when we allow things to blur our vision from the promises of God, we can too easily not follow the way that Elizabeth and Zechariah walk, but follow the way and the voices of those around us. But there is so much power in following the word of the Lord. Because look what happened in verse 63. They wondered. There is something different about these people. They wondered at this. Not only that, but then spread, news spread through all the hill country and all the people that heard it laid it up in their hearts. They were like, this is different. Of course it is though, right? I mean, news like this would spread. If someone asked you, how was your week? Well, I got a story. An elder woman gave birth to a child. Uh, they named him John and not Zechariah. And then her, the dad, who couldn't talk for nine months, is praising God. <laughs> that news is going to spread very quickly. But it's all starting. It's gas, if you will, in the engine that's driving it is their obedience to the word of the Lord. Zechariah didn't get to talk after John was born. He talked after he acted out his faith that his name is John. His faith in and through obedience revealed the worthiness and the beauty of God's promises. For those of you who came to faith as adults, maybe you can testify to this reality. What was it that piqued your interest? Did you say that there was just something different about this one friend of mine? They like said they believed this and they actually did it? And like they were, they were kind when other people weren't. They, they went against what everyone else was doing. They followed what they said they believed. They loved each other differently. Their acts of faithful obedience piqued your heart and interest. And it drew you near. And friends, our acts of faithful obedience do the same thing and have the same effects. Now, before we move on, to the song, I do want us to consider as well Zechariah's response for a second. Zechariah, as we saw earlier, could not speak. He didn't believe the angel. He received a promise of God and he didn't obey it with faith or in faith. And so he was silent. The baby's born. He still can't speak. It is now that he can speak that he names the baby John. We read in verse 64, and immediately 
Immediately after writing his name as John, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Zechariah's immediate response is blessing and praise of the Lord. He has spent nine months in silence, receiving discipline. And his first response is, blessed be the Lord God. During that time, two things could have happened. One of two things could have happened. He could have grown in bitterness. We don't want to like just run over. Of course he's praising God. He's holding a baby. He had nine months that he could have been thinking, I just didn't believe the angel. Really, I can't speak? Why am I in this situation? Why do I have to have this bother me? Or he could grow in faith. And we see that as, as Elizabeth's belly grew, so did his faith. It grew with her. And then when he saw that promise, he didn't respond in bitterness as we can and as is often seen, but he responded in faith and worship. Seeing and knowing that God has kept his promises was welling up in his heart. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about a geyser. Like Mary's Magnificat, the, the, the song there that she sings is a geyser. It's an overflowing because she has received all of this goodness and it's been bubbling up all this praise and it just bursts in song. Zechariah had nine months of bubbling. <laughs> he had nine months of seeing that baby grow. And then he had a whole other week of holding that baby in his arms before he could talk. And then he just explodes in praise and worship because he's beholding the promise of God. Christian, how do you respond to the promises of God? Do they cause your heart to swell with joy, with adoration? Does considering the fact that his promises have been fulfilled in Jesus encourage you? It is like adding fuel to a fire. It is recalling the promises of God ignites our hearts to worship. Now, there will be times when that feels like it can't be true. Something you are going through, grief, depression, sickness. But I encourage you to consider Zechariah because he was going through something that also should have stolen his joy. But what he did was look to his promises and not his circumstances. He understood his circumstances to be, just as the name of his son, a grace given from God because it drew him nearer to his promise-giving and promise-keeping Lord. So friends who struggle, look to Zechariah, look to the Lord who keeps his promises and draw near to him. Now what are the promises? We've been talking a lot about promises. What are the promises that prompt this kind of worship for Zechariah, this kind of joy and encouragement for us? What exactly is causing Zechariah to respond this way? Is it simply because he has a son that he's been waiting for for a long time? Maybe, but I think it's more because what that son reveals and points to, it's that the birth of John is God setting in motion the perfect salvation for his people. That's what causes him to burst out in praise in verses 69 to 79. So let's look at that section, the blessing of the perfect salvation. In verse 64, Luke told us that Zechariah was blessing God when he started to speak. 
So this song could be um, the content from that blessing. It could kind of be, he finishes the narrative there up through verse 68, and then he's going to come back and talk about what Zechariah said in the presence of all those people. Quite possibly. Whether he did or not is not the most important thing. What's, I think, important and interesting <laughs> is that he doesn't have to have the song in the, in the story at all. Mary's song didn't need to be in the story to contribute to the narrative flow of the story. Why are these songs in it? They're contributing very little to the, to the story itself, the unfolding, the bullet point list of this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. Why is it not like that? Because God is trying to show us, invite us to know how to respond to his promises. All of these songs, especially Zechariah's, is an invitation. It's a model to worship him. Why we worship him, how we worship him, what can prompt us to worship him. That's what this song is doing here. So let's look at it a little more closely. We're going to break into two sections, verses 67 to 75. First is what we see that Zechariah blesses God for his salvation. Zechariah blesses God for his salvation. And in this section, we see there's three reasons or three aspects of salvation that causes Zechariah to worship God. First, he blesses God for what his salvation provides. Look at verses 68 and 69 with me. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He cries out, blessed be God. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel. This is all over the Old Testament Psalter. It's any time a psalm is going to praise God, a praise him or a praise psalm, this is how it starts. Zechariah saying, that's what this is all about. This is about worship. And he worships the Lord because he has visited, he has redeemed, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. Visited, redeemed, and raised up a horn of salvation. The first two acts of God here, visiting and redeeming, come from Exodus. Zechariah is almost word for word quoting multiple spots in the book of Exodus when, when Israel was in slavery to Egypt. In Exodus 4.31, Moses says that the Lord God visited his people. Then later, God says in Exodus 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The salvation of the Lord that Zechariah is seeing here and saying that is unfolding is that salvation. It is an exodus. It is a freedom, a redemption, and a deliverance from slavery. Zechariah is likely talking about Rome as well, kind of a physical slavery and a spiritual slavery, because the Old Testament has no difference between the two. One comes because the other. They go into exile because they disobeyed. They need to be free from their sins. They can be free from Babylon and Egypt. So he sees them together. But what we see later in the song, later um, in verse 77, is that the sin 
that plagues us is our true master that we need freedom from. And Zechariah is saying, it's here. God has visited and you are free because of the salvation that he provides. We are free to obey him. We are free to act in faith like, es- uh, like Elizabeth and Zechariah. Even when the flesh in us and the world around us says no, because our salvation is freedom from sin, we can act in faith and obey. And it's not only a deliverance and redemption from something, it is a salvation toward something or someone, God. It's not just that he's going to take you out of Egypt, but he's gonna take you to himself. Look at the end, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. He is going to do it himself, I will bring you out. I will deliver, I will redeem, I will take you. He is going to do it personally and he's going to make it a personal salvation with him. That is so important for us to understand. When we understand salvation and we understand the gospel, the gospel becomes white noise the second that we forget that God's salvation is personal. It's so personal that it personally cost him He sent his own son to die on the cross for you, his own son to take on your weakness, to live how you cannot for you. He personally came himself to visit you, to redeem you, and to make you his. Friends, if the gospel becomes white noise, remember, you have not just doctrine, you have a relationship that stands upon that truth. And he accomplishes this, the last word there, by raising up a horn of salvation. A strange phrase, to be honest. We read that, think maybe a trumpet, like a horn to blast out salvation is here. Not exactly. Um, It's actually more of a horn on an animal, an ox, a bull. How do they kill? Where is their strength? In their horns. The most dangerous part of an ox and a bull is its horns. It will come and it will get you. It is a symbol for strength. Zechariah is saying the salvation of the Lord is the display of his strength. It is as sure as he is the mighty God, your salvation will be sure. It is as strong and unstoppable as an ox with a horn. That is your salvation. He has visited, he has redeemed, and he has given the salvation that displays his mighty strength. That's the first reason Zechariah is worshiping God. The second reason is because this salvation has a purpose. Look at verses 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, so that we, receiving salvation might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here we see that the purpose of our salvation is to serve God, to serve God and to serve him in a specific way, without fear, in holiness and in righteousness. So again, this is, this is Exodus language. It's like Zechariah thinks Exodus is a little important or the Old Testament is a little important as a whole. In Exodus 4, God said to Pharaoh, let my son go. Why? 
He says, so that he may serve me. Why did God redeem Israel from Egypt? To serve him. But the word serve here means a lot more than just like making sure the house is clean and making sure the, the field is, is tilled and there's no rocks in the garden and the beds are weeded. It means so much more. To serve means to worship God. In the Old Testament, this word is used for the priests. Their service to the Lord is an act of worship and engaging in worship as they work for him, before him. So just like Elizabeth and Zechariah, they served the Lord by acting in faith and obeying him. Our salvation has a purpose to bring us before him, to serve him with our hearts, our minds, our mouths as we praise him, and our hands as we serve him and others. Our salvation has a purpose to it. And then last, the last aspect of our salvation that Zechariah praises the Lord for is that it was planned. It was planned. Now we see this all over the psalm. So in verse 69, we just looked at a little bit, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, of, in the house of his servant, David. God made a promise to David, 2 Samuel 7, I will give you a son in his house, and his throne will never end. He will be a son to me. Zechariah is saying that's happening. It's here. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in verse 70, he's saying all of the prophets in the Old Testament, they had one mouth, singular. They had one message, and it's that this salvation was planned, and it's coming, and it's here with the birth of John, bringing the birth of Jesus. Then verse 72, to show the mercy promised to the fathers and to remember his holy covenants. Which covenants? Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That promise that God made to Abraham when he said, step out into the night and look to the sky. In all of those stars, you will have more children than those stars can be numbered. That promise is coming to pass with the birth of Jesus. His point is that the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Abraham with the night sky, Israel with rest in the promised land, and David with an eternal throne. All of these promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus, in his salvation. He is the son of Abraham. So when you have faith in Jesus, you are a son and daughter of Abraham and a recipient of those promises. He's the fulfillment of Israel. In him, true rest is found because true forgiveness of your sins is given. He is the fulfillment of David because he is the eternal king who has all authority in heaven and on earth and is reigning today. He is the king of all of creation. Christian, the coming of Jesus is the declaration that God keeps his word. Jesus is the declaration that God keeps his word. Do you wonder if God will keep his promises where we started? Do you struggle to believe that he is enough, that his way does lead to life, that the pure in heart will see him, 
that the, the peacemakers will be called sons of God, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied? Do you struggle with these promises? Look to Jesus, because God has already kept his promise. He is the rock that we stand on. When we say, God, I want to hold on to this promise, he says, you can because you're standing on my promise. You're standing on Jesus and his oath and his covenant and his blood. And when the waiting seems too long, we need to remember that waiting is part of the story. Waiting is part of the story. Abraham waited 25 years to hold Isaac in his arms. And then God promised a sky full of stars through Isaac. Abraham never saw another baby from Isaac. He saw one star. He died with one star in his sky. Israel went into the land, but they had to wait 40 years. They went into exile, but they had to wait 400 years. David never saw the temple that was promised to be built for the Lord, the start of the fulfillment of his covenant. Christ came at the appointed time, and that appointed time had waiting before it. God's not trying to figure things out. He's not making it up as he goes. He has a plan. As the prophets spoke, he has a plan, and waiting is part of it. So while we wait, as we consider this promise-keeping God, this God that keeps his word, we can trust him, and we can praise him for his past faithfulness, and we can trust him to be faithful tomorrow as well. Now here at the end of this song, Zechariah finally gets to John. The song's supposed to be about John. And John gets two verses of airtime. So we can see already John's ministry is great, but there is one that is greater. And there is something that is greater. And this song is a testimony to that. But here at the end, we have a couple verses that show us what is, what is John's role in all of this? And how does this show us even more how perfect our salvation is? So, turning to the sun, Zechariah closes his song saying, starting in verse 77, 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. In these last few verses, in all of these verses, there is so much in it, we're only going to touch on a couple things. So I encourage you, this week, read Isaiah 9, read Isaiah 40, read Isaiah 66. Also, Get coffee with somebody or lunch. Maybe ask someone to lunch today and talk about this, this uh, text and see what else you can see about our salvation in it. But two more things I want to note. First, this salvation is perfect because it addresses our greatest need. John's role, essentially, is to go before the king. King's coming to town. There's got to be someone in front to let people know, hey, Sweep out the houses, like make everything look nice. The king is coming. That's John. He's going before the king to let everybody know, 
The king's on his way. But with his role to let people know about the king, he's also going to clarify. What is this king going to do? Who is he? What's he care about? Specifically, it's a knowledge of salvation, because that's what comes when this king comes. Salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from your sins. A salvation in the forgiveness of sins. John is this clarifier of Jesus' salvation. In Jesus' day, the greatest enemy was thought of to be Rome. Before that, it was Babylon. Before that, it was probably actually their upper um, neighbors, their own brothers and sisters in, in um, Israel and Syria. Regardless, it was always people. It was always other people. And we can also think in similar ways, that our greatest enemy is something outside of us, that's oppressing us, that's bothering us, whether it's a political opponent, opponent whether it's other nations, societal systems, a person in our life, a lack of income, a hindrance or roadblock to that lifestyle I really want. Those are our greatest enemies, so we think. We think it's something against us. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that our greatest enemy is something within us. It is the sin that reigns within us and has mastery over us. We are enslaved to it. We read that a lot, and we just, I think... That's hyperbolic. That's a really good picture. No, no, we are slaves to sin. Jesus says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is a slave to it. In Galatians, we get the picture of a yoke on an ox. You go where it says to go. You stop when it says to stop. You turn and you do what it says. Without freedom and forgiveness from this enemy, any other freedom is not going to really be freedom. This freedom is the only freedom that gives us hope because without it, we are hopeless. And the hopelessness is what Zechariah is describing in verse 79. In our sin, we are stuck. We are sitting in darkness in the shadow of death. There is, a, there is no light because there's no understanding that there could be a light. It's just dark. But Jesus came to overcome the darkness and to overcome the death so that when the light of the gospel shines into our hearts, we are free. We are redeemed and we are delivered. Charles Wesley describes this of his own conversion in the hymn, And Can It Be? He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It is the light of Jesus that shines into the darkness of our hearts that are enslaved by sin that gives us hope and freedom from our greatest enemy. Non-Christian friend, do you feel the paralyzing reality of sin? Who do you think your greatest enemy is, do you feel the cloud of sin over you, the weight of the burden of sin upon you? There is a way to be forgiven. There is a way to be free. There is a way to escape the darkness and into the light that your soul longs for. It's Jesus. 
who is the light, who came into the darkness, and whom he sets free is free indeed. All who receive the light of Christ, which means all who trust on his good deeds only for their good deeds, and who look to his death as the only payment for their sin, they have the privilege and the right to be called children of God, and they are forgiven and declared righteous before him. Come to Jesus, friend. Christian, what is it that you think is your greatest enemy? Let me be clear. Just because you are a Christian does not mean your enemy has changed. You have been forgiven, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our greatest enemy is the doubt, the sin, the struggles, and even spiritual forces that oppose and oppress us. Let us know who our enemy is so we know how to fight our enemy correctly. And how do we fight our enemy? With the sword of truth the word of God. His promises are what put to death the sin in our hearts. So I encourage you, develop an arsenal full of the promises of God. Memorize the Beatitudes. Memorize Philippians 4.19. Romans 8.31-39 is a great choice. Memorize the promises of God And when sin comes knocking, recite them to yourselves and stand upon the promise-giving and promise-keeping God's word. That's the first reason this salvation is perfect, because it addresses our greatest need. The second reason, our last point, the salvation is perfect because it addresses our greatest deficit, us. Three times, In this passage, the word mercy is mentioned three times. But it's here in verse 78, I think it's most powerful. God has provided a salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Why? Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Our salvation is not deserved, it is not warranted, nothing in us calls for it, nothing we do merits it. It is only because of his tender mercy. The picture this paints is beautiful. He he could have just said his mercy, but he says his tender mercy. This is literally his, his gut a mercy that comes from low in his stomach. He belly aches because he wants to show mercy so bad. This is the feeling that a parent has when their child wakes up with a bad dream in the middle of the night. You, you sit up, you don't huff and puff, oh great, again. You just get up and you go. You go toward them, not just with physically, but with your heart. Your heart is going out to them as they cry out in the darkness. Help me, pick me up, rock me. He just goes. His tender mercy 
is like a parent rocking their child back to sleep who is woken in the night. This is the cause of our salvation. It all hangs, not on you, not on me, but on his mercy. It's perfect for us because the only thing we can offer is our need. And he has the perfect tender mercy for our need. So Chapelwood, this week, let us trust and praise the Lord who has promised and provided the perfect salvation for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are a God who has given us the perfect salvation and that it wasn't by happenstance, it was planned so that we know when we look at your salvation and we look at the fulfillment of your promises that we have hope that we can stand on. Father, help us to stand on the solid rock, your oath, your covenant, and Jesus' blood. Help us to say, great is thy faithfulness. Help us to know that it is our strength for today and our bright hope for tomorrow. You are our hope, O Lord. Help us to trust you and to praise you. Amen. Now at this time, we're going to turn to the table. I invite the servers, if you would go ahead and come up and start to get the elements ready. The table is a place where we are reminded of our God's tender mercy. In sending his own son to live, suffer, and die in our place, we see the display of God's mercy. And so as we come to the table and we take the elements that remind us of that, we are reminded of his mercy as well. And so this morning, I invite all of you who are trusting in Jesus, whose solid rock is the Lord, that you come, receive the bread and the juice, and we will then take this together after we finish singing a song. So the servers are gonna be lined up down here. You can line up down the aisles, come forward, receive the elements, take it back to your spot while we sing and finish our song, and then I will lead us to take it together. Um, if you need a gluten-free option, there is one, ask for it. And if you need someone to bring it back to you, there are plates in the front pews that you can take cups back in. The last note on this is if you are not trusting in Jesus, we are so happy you're here. Ask us questions. Come to lunch with us. Hang out. Um, but this is a time for the family to remember God's mercy to them. And so I just ask that you would um, not partake in this part of our service, but ask us later about it and about the gospel, and we'd love to share with you. So I will pray one more time to give thanks over the elements, and then John will start, and we can um, sing a song as we get the elements. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the table. We thank you that our Savior gave his body and his blood for us. We thank you that you provided the perfect sacrifice in Jesus, that we have full forgiveness of sins, that we have complete freedom, and that we will one day be with you. Father, we pray that this would be a foretaste of that day um, and a, a taste that causes our hearts to look to that day and seek that day evermore. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.